A scholarly talk, as everyone knows, should be, first, detailedly documented, secondly, fanatically footnoted, third, tightly textual, fourth, severely structured, fifth, soberly scientific, sixth, sternly serious, and seventh, deadly dull. <laughs> so as you can probably guess already, this is not going to be a scholarly talk. I would like to sell Walker Percy to C.S. Lewis fans and C.S. Lewis to Walker Percy fans. So the title of this talk is Walker Percy's Lost in the Cosmos as the Abolition of Man in Late Night Comedy Format. <laughs> I think I must have been reading too much of Walker Percy and have come down with one of his very communicable diseases, the disease of seeing our tragedies as comedies without ceasing to see them as tragedies. This is a disease that is a dis-ease that Percy seems to have caught from the likes of Euripides, Socrates, Aristophanes, Boccaccio, Shakespeare, Samuel Johnson, Pascal, Kierkegaard, and Chesterton. But at least let's try to begin logically with some principles and definitions. There are two ways to say what you want to say, or as professors put it, two modes of communication, direct and indirect. The most beloved kind of indirect communication is humor. It is also often the most effective, and nearly always the most memorable and repeatable. There are three main theories of humor among philosophers, who are usually the most humorless human beings haunting our planet. Darwinians see humor as a nervous twitch of the same genus as that in hyenas and eels. Marxists and deconstructionists see it as class conflict or snide sneering or social satire. Classicists and rationalists see it as incongruity or irony, the contrast between appearance and reality, which is also the origin of philosophy and science. Darwin and Marx, having been pretty thoroughly discredited by now, let us assume the old Greeks were onto something, as Percy would say, when they saw irony as the metaphysical core of humor. And let's apply this to Percy's use of it to communicate uh, indirectly the same essential point Lewis communicated directly in the abolition of man. Which is more effective, indirect communication or direct communication? That depends on the social situation and the receptivity of the audience. If the audience is rational and receptive, direct communication is more effective for two obvious reasons. It is clearer and it is briefer. For instance, Aristotle is clearer than Plato. He is, of course, also duller and much less funny. Aristotle says more things in less space. A Socratic dialogue, Plato's means of indirect communication, when compared with Aristotle, lacks both clarity and brevity. It lacks clarity because it usually deliberately ends up not with knowledge but with ignorance, or more exactly, with the reader's knowledge of his own ignorance. And it lacks brevity because Socrates takes 30 pages to get to a point that could be summarized in half a page by a professor or a Cliff Notes. <laughs> Yet the Socratic dialogue form has been read for 2,400 years for much fun and profit. That is, it has attained the two ends of all literature, according to classical critics, to please and instruct, and has done so more powerfully than any other form of communication in its field. There are two possible reasons why indirect communication sometimes works better than direct. 
Both reasons are features of the audience. First, the audience may be bored, jaded, skeptical, sleepy, and suspicious. That is, the audience may be modern. <laughs> Percy points out, by the way, that the very word boredom does not exist in any pre-modern language. Second, the content of the message may be deeply threatening to the presuppositions, prejudices, or worldview of the audience, so that a direct attack on these presuppositions would succeed only in eliciting bitterness, resentment, and defensiveness or offensiveness, rather than open-minded thought, doubt, or questioning. This is usually what happens when Christians and non-Christians try to talk to each other about religion or anything religion makes a difference to, especially sex. Each side has its own religion and sees the other side as, well, the other side, the far side. <laughs> Kierkegaard gave Percy the rationale for the method of indirect communication, especially in The Point of View for My Work as an Author, one of Kierkegaard's last and most illuminating books. Kierkegaard faced this problem. How can I dispel the religious illusion of the typically modern man? The illusion is that many people who think they are Christians are not, since the word Christian no longer means something distinctive to them, and they live in categories totally foreign to Christianity, the very same categories as non-Christians, which Kierkegaard calls aesthetic, categories of the interesting and the boring, or at most what he called the ethical, that is, categories of duty to abstract law, rather than in the essential Christian categories of sin versus faith. So the Christian writer today must be a spy. Kierkegaard's spy mission was to smuggle Christianity back into Christendom. Now, a spy needs a cover. The Christian spy's best cover today is literary or aesthetic. For instance, literary critic, that's C.S. Lewis's cover. Or journalist, that's Chesterton's cover. Or novelist, that's Percy's cover. Lewis used both direct communication in his nonfiction and indirect communication in his fiction. The abolition of man is direct communication, for it is the Riddell Memorial Lectures which he was invited to give. The same point of these lectures was made to a much wider audience indirectly in that hideous strength, for the audience that read that book was an audience that did not invite him, an audience whose worldview he wanted to challenge. So he used fiction. The Muslim proverb says, before you shoot the arrow of truth, dip it in honey. Indirect communication is honey. There is also a middle form, halfway between fiction and nonfiction, which is also a form of indirect communication. This is satirical essays, typified by Lewis's Screwtape Letters, and Percy's Lost in the Cosmos, and only a little less satirical, The Message in the Bottle. The essential point of Lost in the Cosmos and the essential point of the abolition of man are essentially the same. And since these are two of my favorite books in the whole world, and since their common point is, as it seems to me, the single most crucial issue and fateful choice facing Western civilization today, and perhaps even the whole human race, which is becoming increasingly westernized, and since these two books typify the two different communication forms, direct and indirect, it seems a very right and proper and obvious thing to do to compare them. They are two of the books of the 20th century that I would make everyone on earth read at gunpoint if I were God. I'm glad I'm not God. <laughs> Fine title for endless foolish ruminations, if I were God. Uh, if you were to ask me what four books I would assign, what six books I would assign, uh, well, i got to stop somewhere. 
to save Western civilization, those two and mere Christianity and Chester as the everlasting man and orthodoxy and Huxley's brave new world. But of, the six, of those six books, The Abolition of Man and Lost in the Cosmos, fittingly come first as a precondition for the other four. For if the message of the abolition of man and lost in the cosmos, which is essentially that of objective values, is not heeded, if our civilization continues to drink what Lewis calls the poison of subjectivism, then it will become brave new world and will lose all interest in and eventually even comprehension of the claims of Christianity, even when those claims are put as powerful as Lewis in mere Christianity and Chesterton in orthodoxy and the everlasting man put them. It will not refute them or even confute them, but it will blink blandly at them and classify them as an outdated lifestyle or a personal subjective option. That is why Lewis says in The Poison of Subjectivism that this master error, that of the subjectivity of values, will certainly damn our souls and end our species. There can be no worse poison, no more important issue than that. So how do Lewis and Percy try to doctor the human soul that is drugged with the poison of subjectivism? Since direct communication is clearer and simpler, let's look at the abolition of man first. The book is prophetic. It is couched in scholarly language. In fact, its plethora of learned Latinate references scare away even college students today, for this is the first generation in American history that is less well-educated than its parents. But its content is a terrifying prophecy of mortality, not just the mortality of modern Western civilization, every sane person knows that, and many look forward to it as the garbage collection, but the mortality of human nature itself, if we do not recapture belief in the Tao, the natural law, the doctrine of objective values. Every civilization in human history has believed in what Lewis calls the Tao. Ours is the first that has abandoned it. Not just in practice, every civilization does that, that's called sin. But in theory, in belief. To the typically modern mind, and nothing more centrally defines the modern mind than this, objective reality no longer includes the moral dimension of good and evil. The fact versus value distinction has become definitive. Reality has been reduced to the scientific dimension of neutral, valueless fact. There is no longer anything outside ourselves and the products of our own minds to bow down to, conform to, or respect. Even many traditionalists or conservatives do not see the radical, apocalyptic nature of this change as clearly as Lewis does. He shows that this is a true transvaluation of values, as Nietzsche would put it, a 180-degree turn, a turning the world upside down, especially in this sentence that I quoted last night and said was the most illuminating sentence that I had ever read about Western civilization. Let me repeat it again from The Abolition of Man. There is something which unites magic and applied science, that is technology, while separating both from the wisdom of earlier ages. For the wise men of old, the cardinal problem had been how to conform the soul to objective reality. And the solution had been knowledge, self-discipline, and virtue. But for magic and applied science alike, the problem is how to subdue reality to the wishes of men, and the solution is a technique. Technology is more like magic than like science. If you are surprised at this statement, you do not understand the essence of technology. Heidegger understands it as the fulfillment of the Nietzschean will to power, 
as the new summum bonum final end or meaning of life. To see this point, imagine an experiment. Children are often given boxes to sort things in, and the observer can tell much about the children's mind by how they classify things. For instance, if a child is told to put a baseball, a basketball, a baseball bat, and a basketball net into two boxes, the structuralist or static mind will put the two balls in one box and the two other items, which are not spheres, in the other box. While the functionalist child will put the baseball and the bat in one box and the basketball and its hoop in the other. Now, suppose you are asked to classify these four things, religion, science, magic, and technology, and to put them into two categories. Most people would classify science and technology together and religion and magic together. And there is a point to this classification, since science and technology are limited to the empirically verifiable and the scientific method, whereas religion and magic are not. But there is a deeper classification, and Lewis uses it and sees it. Science and religion both aim at conforming the mind to objective truth, to objective reality. Science conforms the mind to the nature of the universe, and religion conforms the mind to the nature of God and the will to the will of God. Magic and technology, on the other hand, try to conform objective reality to the human will. That is why they both arose at the same time, not the Middle Ages, but the Renaissance, not the age of God, but the age of man. Both are Faustian, Promethean. The difference is simply that technology works, while magic doesn't, at least not usually. But their end, their goal, the purpose behind them, the human values and desires and state of soul that sets them in motion are the same. The three main points of the abolition of man are summarized in the titles of its three chapters. First, men without chests. Second, the Tao. And third, the abolition of man. First, our civilization's educational elite, our opinion molders, who have become much more powerful and much more philosophically radical since Lewis's day, in each of the three main mind-molding establishments in our culture, education, entertainment, and journalism, are producing a new species of man. Men without chests, or hearts, or consciences, that is, ears to hear the Tao. In other words, our experts are producing men and women like themselves. They are reproducing, not biologically, but culturally, by a kind of cultural cloning. The Tao, point of the second chapter, is the doctrine of the existence and nature of objective values, universal and unchangeable moral truths, which made our ancestors human. The abolition of man, the point of the third chapter, will therefore necessarily follow if we continue to disbelieve and reject and forget the Tao. For the Tao is the precondition of our being human. Remove the precondition or cause and you remove the effect. Abolish the Tao and you abolish man. Another road to the same terrifying conclusion, the abolition of man, in this book, is Lewis's exploration of modernity's new summum bonum, that is, man's conquest of nature. This new ideal of power over nature can only mean the use of nature as an instrument for the power of some men, the conditioners, over others, the conditioned. For instance, TV producers over their captive audiences, especially children and teenagers. Man is the last bit of nature to be conquered. That is, reduced to mere nature, to malleable artifact or object 
to be conquered by Taoist naturalistic amoral conditioners. Thus, man's conquest of nature turns out to be nature's conquest of man and the abolition of man. The equation, man's conquest of nature, must be expanded at both ends, so to speak, so that behind the conquering man we see nature, and under the conquered nature we see the conditioned man. The first point, men without chests, is the negative one. The second, the Tao, is the positive one. And the third, the abolition of man, is the prophetic one. The first is the present one, the second is the past one, and the third is the future one, if we keep sliding down the present slippery slope. Lewis's book is perfectly organized and complete, a work of art. Walker Percy makes these same points, but in a different format. For while Lewis lectured to people who asked to be lectured at, nobody asked Percy. So he had to use the indirections of humor, satire, and irony to people who have learned to defend themselves against the direct preachments of the Tao by singing Madonna's song, Papa Don't Preach, instead of the Madonna's song, Be It Done to Me According to Thy Word. Lewis was lecturing to professionals and professors and dons who may not have been feeling threatened by his jeremiads about Western civilization because they felt above it, abstracted from it, as its scholars, its historians, its professors, observers more than participants. They may not have been on Lewis's side philosophically, but they were on his side professionally, that is, on the sidelines, as members of the observing class. Percy, on the other hand, talked to his fellow passengers on the Titanic. Lewis talked to his fellow officers. For Lewis was very British and Percy very American. And in England, every passenger thinks he's some kind of officer, while in egalitarian America, even the officers think of themselves as passengers. <laughs> but the message is the same. That message, the Tao, used to be the primal platitude. Now it's the lost secret. It used to be the map of the mainland. Now it's the message in the bottle. For like Robinson Crusoe, we have been shipwrecked. Lost, alienated from home. Any message from another world than our island would come to us as revelation. Any light that shines on our haunted wood would be a holy light. For that is what our island is now, a haunted wood. Our cosmos, Percy says, has become a haunted cosmos, and we are the ghosts that haunt it. That's Percy's answer in Lost in the Cosmos to the ancient oracle's puzzle, Know Thyself. Percy's message in the bottle is the gospel. The gospel is the good news about the Savior and salvation. Salvation presupposes sin to be saved from. Sin presupposes the Tao, the objective moral law that we sin against and which defines our sin as sin. Paul says, without the law, I would not know sin as sin. But modern man has been injected with the poison of subjectivism about values. Therefore, the castaways who read the message in the bottle do not look up with joy and hope, but rather only say of that message, as of all messages, it's only from us. Everything is only from us to the modern mind that rejects transcendence. Values, too, are only from us. Our values, our commandments, our rules, our games, our gods. How can a Christian writer address such poor souls, such wraiths, such ghosts, 
There are only two ways, directly or indirectly, without or with a spy's cover, in scholarship or in satire, with pen or with pun, ironically or ironically. The abolition of man does the first, lost in the cosmos does the second. Same message, different medium. Percy writes realistic novels about a world in which Lewis's prophecy has largely come true. A world of men without chests, trousered apes, walking clipboards, computers with hormones. In other words, our world. Camus said, future historians will need to say only two things of 20th century man. He fornicated and read newspapers. <laughs> but this news is too unacceptable to announce directly. After so much evolutionary effort, man will not take kindly to the news that he is devolving back into an ape. How then to play the prophet to the yuppie? Percy learned the technique from Kierkegaard, especially in the point of view for my work as an author, in which Kierkegaard pointed out that direct attack will no longer work because modern man has equipped himself with a new defensive weapon against it, boredom. The only thing modern man needs to do to protect himself against the radical infection of the gospel is to inoculate himself with a mild, boring version of the gospel. What we get in so many Sunday sermons and theology departments. So as to build up antibodies against the real thing. Then he can call the prophet a fanatic and a fundamentalist, his two new F words, and simply ignore him. But the Christian spy can still sneak into Christendom under cover of the aesthetic, through indirection, irony, and wit. Then he doesn't seem serious or therefore threatening, although he really is both to an extreme degree. Humor works like a spy slipping through the city gates while his partner distracts the guard. Like pickpockets, pickpockets always work in twos. One distracts, the other picks. Humor slips in the zinger, the punchline, during that infinitesimally short moment of mental silence and defenselessness when the chattering, ideologically propagandized ego has its defenses down and doesn't know what it's supposed to think or say. All great humor works in that holy silence, that tiny window of opportunity. The gospel, too, comes to us in silence, works on the soul only in a moment of silence. Just as it was in the silence of midnight when all things were hushed that the eternal word leaped down from heaven, so it is in the silence of the heart that the word rushes in. Kierkegaard knew this well. Many times he wrote, If I were a doctor, if I were allowed to prescribe only one remedy for all the ills of the modern world, I would prescribe silence. For even if the word of God were proclaimed in the modern world, it would be choked to death with noise. It would not be heard because there is no silence. Therefore, first, create silence. <coughs> One way of doing that is humor. Humor creates silence. And in this silence, as the ego sleeps for a second, the eternal word can slip down like a spy or like Santa down into your chimney. God did what Kierkegaard and Percy did. He used irony and indirect communication and even humor in his biggest punchline of all. When he revealed himself most definitively, he didn't come with a blare of trumpets to the emperor's throne, but to the bleat of cows to an animal feeding trough. He didn't come to Rome, but to Bethlehem. 
My Italian wife gives me permission to insert this racist remark. The reason he came to Israel instead of Italy was that he looked up and down all of Italy to set up the drama, but he couldn't find anywhere three wise men or one virgin. (laughs) He could have shaped the sky into a gigantic mouth. Instead, he came as a spy who created his own cover, the cover of a poor baby. The Incarnation is the most ironic thing that ever happened. And if you are on the wavelength of ironic humor, the most hilarious trick ever played. Except perhaps the even greater one 33 years later when he did the devil in with his own judo on the cross. There was a TV comedy show some years ago called Steam Bath in which God was a worldly wise, street smart Puerto Rican janitor in the locker room of a men's steam bath between worlds. The real story is no less incredible and no less ironic. God as an apolitical Jewish carpenter who got crucified for blasphemy and treason. In Fear and Trembling, Kierkegaard distinguished the knight of faith, the Christian hero, from the knight of infinite resignation, the classical pagan hero. The knight of faith is an ordinary schmuck like a carpenter. The knight of infinite resignation is extraordinary and obvious and aloof like a king. God himself became a hero of his own faith. Kierkegaard wrote, If God had willed to appear as a gigantic green bird sitting on a high hill and whistling in an unheard of manner, then even our bored society man would be the first to notice. That would be direct communication. But that would set up a false relationship. It would be the true God, but untruly related to man. Kierkegaard, like Percy, is more concerned with truth in the relationship with God than with truth in the concepts about God. The false relationship that a direct communication would set up, according to Kierkegaard, is the relationship of immediacy, the relationship between the unambiguously divine and the amazed, stunned, passive, and unfree observer. Instead, God wants to set up the true relationship of free choice, trust, and love. To do this, the direct relationship must be avoided or broken. God must speak indirectly instead. He must disguise himself like a spy, like a king despising himself as a humble peasant boy in order to woo the humble peasant maiden. In Kierkegaard's beautiful allegorical fairy tale of the gospel in chapter 2 of his philosophical fragments. This is the answer, by the way, to one of the simplest and hardest of all objections against Christianity. The question that haunted C.S. Lewis and that he wrote his very best novel, Till We Have Faces, to answer the problem of evil. Why doesn't God do more? Why doesn't he reveal himself more clearly? Why must holy places be dark places? In Bertrand Russell's words, why didn't you give us more evidence? That's the question Russell said on his deathbed that he would ask God if he found out after death that God existed after all. The answer to this question is in the title, Till We Have Faces. The question is, how can God meet us face to face till we have faces? How can the king marry the maiden happily until she is brought to equality with him somehow, so that she can see him face to face and not die? In order to lift her up, the king lowers himself down, the kenosis, the emptying. In the words of the Athanasian Creed, God became like man so that man might become like God. God participated in humanity so that man could participate in his own life. So Percy does what God did. He descends. He pretends to be a modern skeptic 
or a bad Catholic like Dr. Tom Moore, someone very unlike his favorite saint, St. Thomas More, so that he can inveigle us Toms to More. Percy speaks not through heroes, but anti-heroes, not saints, but sinners, not beautiful people, but ugly people, people only a little less grotesque than Flannery O'Connor's grotesqueries. The strategical reasoning is as follows. He wants to address the irony that modern man, who thinks he's with it, is really out of it. So he speaks through people who are apparently out of it, like the wacky old priest in the tower in the Thanatos syndrome, a modern Simeon Stylites, probably the least comprehensible and sympathetic saint possible to modern man. For, in a world which confuses with it, with out of it, because it's it is man's fashion instead of God's eternity, with it and out of it are exactly reversed. Percy stands us on our heads because this is the only way to put us right side up. We are already standing on our heads, upside down, eyes in the mud and dirt and earth, nose to the grindstone, heels kicking rebelliously up against the heavens. Sorry, Chesterton, it's the second time I quoted that image from you. So like Chesterton, Percy turns everything upside down. To do this, he first stands on his head, too, alongside modern man. The difference is he knows he's upside down. Kierkegaard used the same strategy by adopting pseudonyms for the non-Christian points of view from which he wrote many of his books, creating fictional authors for his philosophy instead of fictional characters for a story. For instance, Johannes Silento, John the Silent, is the objective philosophical Socratic observer who is amazed at Abraham in Fear and Trembling. Johannes Climacus, John the Climber, compares the Socratic and the Christian standpoints in philosophical fragments, but from a Socratic point of view rather than from a Christian point of view. And thereby he reveals more about what Christianity adds to philosophical wisdom than any direct Christian preaching could do. The heart of irony is the contradiction between what seems and what is, between appearance and reality. This distinction is the origin of both philosophy and science, for both philosophy and science presuppose the questioning of appearances to find the hidden reality something that neither animals nor computers can do. Animals and computers cannot be ironic. Kierkegaard and Jesus are Percy's two main models for irony. Kierkegaard wrote his doctoral dissertation on the concept of irony. And Jesus' humor, like most Jewish humor, is centered on irony. So Percy's does too, especially in Lost in the Cosmos. Irony is the subtlest and highest that is most divine form of humor. He that sitteth in the heavens laughing is not relieving his nervous tensions or needing a comic relief from an onerous life or sneeringly enjoying other people's discomfort or tittering at erotic suggestions. All these theories of humor fail because they don't go to its profoundest root, which must be rooted in God somehow. Everything good is. God is an ironist. God is even a punster. Puns are linguistic ironies. For God created a world where one thing means many other things, just like a pun. Meaning in the God-created universe is multidimensional. As von Balthasar put it, truth is symphonic. The only unambiguous, unequivocal, non-ironic, unfunny language is mathematics. That's the only language computers understand. That's why computers have absolutely no sense of humor. Some people are becoming like computers. Indeed, the fundamental pun is the word being itself. It is analogical, not univocal. 
creatures be because they borrow being. God doth be because he is being. It's also double, essence and existence. These two fundamental technical theses of Thomistic metaphysics are puns on the word being. It's almost like defining being as what bees do. Only Thomas's two puns on being are much more subtle and all-encompassingly true. God's universe is full of Jewish humor, Jewish ironies. Many people just don't get Jewish humor, just as some people don't get English humor. Both are too subtle and ironic in different ways. Crude and dull minds want jokes, not irony. They want tension relievers, occasions to feel superior or erotic teases. God and Percy preferred the humor of profound play, the delighted juggling of the ambiguities of being. One of my most traumatic teaching memories was the first time I assigned Lost in the Cosmos with no introductions or explanations and asked for feedback. Most of the students didn't understand that the book was supposed to be funny. They took it seriously as a self-help book instead of a parody on self-help books. And they gave straight answers to all the quiz questions. This happened before Percy died. I thought of sending him my students' reactions, but I didn't because I feared it would cause a clinical depression or a heart attack. <laughs> Maybe somebody else did. Maybe that's why he died. <clears throat> Even though Percy isn't Jewish, his humor is certainly Jewish in spirit. I think deep down every good comedian is Jewish, as every good cook is French, every good philosopher is Greek, and every good lover is Italian. <laughs> like Pascal, another one of his deepest influences, Percy was deeply impressed by the uniqueness of the Jews and their history. He says in the Thanatos Syndrome that modern media have cheapened and flattened the language and emptied out the bite from every other word except one, the word Jew. It is the only word that has not had its teeth pulled. Other words have become putty. They can mean anything the manipulators, Lewis's conditioners, make them mean, like the disembodied little squiggles on a computer screen. But the word Jew remains scandalously concrete and unassimilated, like the Jews themselves. They are the first alternative to the Tower of Babel. Only the word can save us from the Tower of Babel. Jewish wisdom, in humor, as well as in the prophets, is a natural preparation for the word made flesh, just as Greek wisdom in drama and philosophy can be that natural preparation. Jewish humor is irony. Greek drama is irony. Greek philosophy is questioning. All three sharply distinguish appearance and reality. Here is how Daniel Bell, the famous Harvard educator, a Jew himself, describes Jewish humor. He writes, Jewish humor is not jokes. A joke is a contrived situation, a manipulated effect, a commodity of the moment. The essence of Jewish humor is wit, the play of words, the compression of language to reflect the compression chamber of life. For instance, two men stand outside of Lubyanka, the old dungeon in Moscow. The two stand there, not saying a word. Eventually, one of them gives a long sigh. Says the other agitatedly, Yankel, how many times am I telling you not to discuss politics here? <laughs> Irony, the heart of Jewish humor, is the clash between appearance and reality. The humor questions the appearances. Even the most apparently obvious truism in the world, the law of non-contradiction. A rabbi held court, hearing two women with complaints against each other. The rabbi listened intently to the first woman and, persuaded by her tears, said to her, You are right. The second woman protested, Wait, you have not heard me. 
The rabbi listened to her and, again persuaded, said to her, you are right. The rabbi's wife, perplexed, said, how can they both be right? The rabbi turned to his wife and said, you are right too. <laughs> Another example of overcoming logic itself. Sidney Morgenbesser, a Jewish philosopher at Columbia, was confronted at Oxford by John Austin, the British logician, who said to him, Mr. Morgenbesser, I am told that you believe that two affirmatives can make a negative. Now, that is just not possible in English. In our language, two negatives can make an affirmative, but two affirmatives can never make a negative. To which Morgenbesser replied, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You never beat a Jewish comedian. God's Jewish. Lost in the Cosmos views the world with this kind of ironic humor and uses the gentle mouthpiece of the ironist to deliver the terrifyingly serious point that Lewis delivers straight in The Abolition of Man. The mouthpiece is in many ways similar to that of late-night comedy, especially the beloved Johnny Carson and David Letterman. Both these comedians are gentle ironists in the Will Rogers tradition. Both find humor in situations, in conversations, rather than just telling jokes. They're not stand-up comics with artificial routines. They find humor in the real human situation, and that humor is largely irony. Though both are Gentiles, they share much of the world and life view of Jewish humor. So let's take two examples that must have influenced Percy, at least unconsciously. First, probably the most well-loved, memorable, and funny of Carson's characters was Karnak the Magnificent. Karnak gave questions to others' answers instead of vice versa, thus applying ironic reversal to the very situation and format of questioning. Question and answer humor is typically Jewish. The rabbis, like Socrates, taught by questioning rather than by just answering. Like Socratic philosophy, Jewish humor usually begins with a question and ends with a surprise answer, a turnaround, an irony, an archetypal example. Why does a Jew always answer a question with another question? Reply, why shouldn't a Jew answer a question with another question? <laughs> the two greatest teachers in history did that all the time, Jesus and Socrates. Karnak's reversing of questions and answers is paralleled by the most oft-quoted of all the rabbinical questions. God is the answer, but what is the question? That question is the theme of one of the most beautiful fairy tales ever written, and perhaps the most profoundly Christian, The Golden Key by George MacDonald. A boy and a girl find a beautiful golden key, but they have to search all worlds for the door that it opens. They get the answer first, then they look for the question. Like Karnak. Like us. For the answer, the golden key, is Christ. This answer has been dumped into our laps, into our world. Now we have to rearrange and reinterpret our lives around this answer. We have to rearrange our questions. Our fundamental situation is hilariously ironic. Millions of people milling around looking for not the key, but the door. Not for the answer, but for the question. Like Karnak. And like modern man, lost in the cosmos, with thousands of little answers to little questions about the cosmos, but lacking the fundamental question, much less the answer, know thyself. Socrates' question. Lost in the cosmos does not aim to give the reader a better answer directly. 
But Socratically, it inveigles him to ask a better question than he is asking, to pose the great puzzle about himself. Why does the astronomer know more about a galaxy than about the astronomer? This question is a trick question. I suspect Socrates' know thyself was also, and he knew it was a trick question. It's an unanswerable question. It's a koan puzzle. For the self can't be known as an object of knowledge, since it is not an object, but a subject. That's what the self means, an I. That's God's great joke on us. We're eyes that can see everything except themselves. Mirrors that can reflect everything in the universe except themselves. And yet that is precisely our one essential task, to find ourselves. If this is so, the logical corollary is then either that the self cannot be known, ever, or else that it can be known only by another, higher self. Only to the absolute subject can human subjects be objects. The message in the bottle, divine revelation, can tell us who we are, if and only if it's not only from us. The failure of naturalistic, secularistic, modern psychologies of self-knowledge and correlatively self-help laid bare by Percy's satire in Lost in the Cosmos clears the way for our receptivity to the alternative, listening to divine revelation and divine salvation, the two things modern man needs most and wants least. You can't feed him that spinach directly. Ever watch an adult try to feed a baby spinach? You've got to trick them. Only if you distract their attention, tell a joke, or tickle the baby can you get some spinach down in that golden window of opportunity while he stopped to be silent and then laugh. Just as most viewers love and remember Carson's Karnak the best, they love and remember Letterman's lists the best. Lost in the Cosmos is full of lists. Most of them in the form of simple or elaborate multiple choice questions, in which all the answers are partly right. Now, what is so significant about lists? Lists are like roadmaps. They artificially separate, analyze, order, and quantify things. The ancient habit of dividing things into lists, the 12 steps to mystical experience, the four last things, the seven wonders of the world, the four noble truths, is a precursor of the analytic scientific method. But analysis and quantification are precisely what you can never do with the self, the I, the single subject that unifies all the objects in our experience into a single world, as the narrator of a novel unifies all the ingredients into one novel, the object of his consciousness. That's why the word psychology is literally an oxymoron. Logi means science, and science means analysis and quantification, but the psyche, or self, is precisely what does all the analyzing and quantifying. Pop psychology is full of lists, step-by-step -step programs, ways of climbing Jacob's ladder rung by rung from the bottom up, from psychological purgatory or earth to heaven, from neurosis to homeostasis, from alienation to adjustment, from Victorian repression or Christian moralism to free expression and sexual fulfillment, from being wronged to asserting your rights, from fundamentalism or fanaticism to becoming a good member of the kingdom of this world. But what can't be climbed by steps or lists is the true Jacob's ladder, the ladder to heaven, even the ladder of your true self. The only way that ladder can go anywhere is upside down, the true Jacob's Ladder is the exact opposite of the Tower of Babel. 
not an erection, but a descent, not Promethean, but canotic, incarnational. Babel collapses in Babel, but Jacob's ladder holds even angels. Finally, it holds the word himself, the healer of Babel's Babel. He himself says so. He identified himself as the real Jacob's ladder, John 1.51. Today, Babel's Babel is psychobabble. Pop psychology is our most popular tower, our new religion, both inside and outside the church. Self-help books of psychology outnumber all other books in all other sciences combined in bookstores. And even in the church, more people, including clergy, look to psychology than to theology and see Jesus as the original Mr. Rogers and the church as Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. (laughs) A friend of mine swears he even heard an Easter sermon whose point was that Jesus' message from the cross was, I'm okay, you're okay. (laughs) Wonder how all that blood crept into the story. Such a situation calls not for fulmination but satire. But the problem is serious as well as comic. The problem is simply that all our babels just don't work. No ladder will stretch as far as we all want to go to something more than we've got. Our hearts remain restless till they rest in him, despite all our peace of mind prophets who call peace, peace when there is no peace. Deep down, we're all divinely discontent with this wonderful but fallen world, this defaced masterpiece that is the human self, the self that produces both martyrs and murderers, both Mother Teresa's and Hitler's. Even those who don't believe in heaven don't really believe in earth either, deep down. That's why they tell jokes about it. You don't tell jokes about your faith, your savior, or your God. They long to know the answer to Patty Page's great question, is that all there is? And they long to know how to get there, if there is. The situation of the secularist is exactly that of the archetypal main farmer joke, you can't get there from here. No, you can't. You can't know yourself or your final end by yourself. The self is a koan, a puzzle that is unsolvable. Like, tell me the somebody you were when you were nobody. Only God can know you. The secret of your identity is in your author alone, because you are his character. Only transcendence can know you, and only transcendence can save you. Jacob's ladder works only because God made it. It came down from heaven. Jacob's ladder is, of course, Christ. Walker Percy is a kind of modern John the Baptist, especially in Lost in the Cosmos, preparing the way for the gospel, exalting valleys and flattening hills, exalting publicans and flattening Pharisees, exalting schlemiels and flattening schmucks, comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable, in Dorothy Day's wonderful words. The true king is coming and wants to enter his throne room of the self, but the road is full of big chunks of psychobabble. So lost in the cosmos is palm branches to cover the psychobabble. It is a pooper scooper for psychobabble. (laughs) The central irony in this book is that the human self that has finally learned so many secrets of the cosmos has forgotten the thing closest to itself. The more we know the less we know who it is who knows it all. William Barrett, in Irrational Man, puts this ironic point in two sentences, which, rubbed together like flint and steel, produce a spark, an enlightening question. Point one, modern man has exhaustively studied everything, especially himself. He has not ignored himself. On the contrary, our most popular science is psychology. 
Nothing has been more mapped and studied than the self in modern times. Point two, after all this effort, we know ourselves far less than we ever did before. The more we know about ourselves, the less we know ourselves. What could be more ironic than that? How could this have happened? There are two answers. The most obvious and important one is that we have forgotten God. We no longer believe what we have been told about ourselves from our creator and designer. The character has forgotten who he is because he has thrown away the script and rejected the playwright. This can and must be changed. We can and must return, repent, convert. But there is a second reason for the paradox which cannot be undone. It lies in the very nature of the self and the nature of knowledge and takes a little explanation. Where English has only one word for no, most other languages have two. In German, kennen and wissen. In French, connaître and savoir. These two are inversely proportional. The more you know in one way, the less you know in the other. The more object knowledge, the less subject knowledge. The more analysis, the less synthesis. The more quantity, the less quality. That principle seems to hold true for most of the world. The more less left brain, the less right brain. The more rational, the less intuitive. The more masculine, the less feminine. Carl Stern says our whole modern Western civilization is a flight from woman. That is a flight from right brain. So we naturally call this feminism. We know the cosmos of objects by objective rational knowledge, by science. We know ourselves only by intuitive knowledge. Pre-scientific ancients often made the mistake of trying to know the cosmos by intuition and myth and poetry and mysticism instead of science. Whereas the typically modern mind usually makes the far deadlier error of trying to understand the self by science. The ancients personalized the universe, the moderns depersonalized the self. The ancients thought that even matter was spirit. We think even spirit is matter. They thought even things were persons. We think even persons are things. They worshipped the earth as the body of a god. We call psychology a science. Which mistake is stupider and deadlier? Since rational and intuitive knowledge are mutually exclusive, at least at the same time, and inversely proportionate, since at least temporarily you must sacrifice the one in order to do the other, a surprising corollary follows that there is no such thing as simple and total progress. Every progress must be also a regress. For every step forward, there is an equal and opposite step back. Thought works by a law similar to the law of matter, that for each action, there must be an equal and opposite reaction. There's no free lunch, except for God, who can create something out of nothing without that something reacting on him and can know that something without learning it, or without that something influencing him, until he becomes one of us and hangs on a cross and takes our reactions straight in the heart. The old religion of progress is dying today. The so-called enlightenment, that is the great darkness, is almost as dead as communism, which was one of its children. No reasonable person today believes in salvation through science and technology just as no reasonable person today believes in salvation by the all-encompassing state, except perhaps the Democratic Party, humanities departments, and prestigious American universities, and the saints and sages who tell lies in our newspapers and addict us to greed, lust, and violence on TV. (laughs) 
One gets the image of desperately optimistic Englishmen sniffing the air aboard the Titanic as it lists at a 45-degree angle and comfortably conversing, lovely voyage, what, what nice progress we're making. <laughs> Everybody else knows the obvious, that modernity is a disaster. The only people you can still fool about that are professors, the world's most pampered people. Real people know darn well that nearly everything called progress in society is really regress. Science and technology is another matter. That is a spectacular success story of knowledge and power, but hardly happiness, except in medicine. When a developer destroys a beauty spot, we say, oh well, you can't stop progress. When marriages and families are destroyed by anti-religious and anti-moral philosophies of selfishness, we call it realism. When public schools confiscate Bibles and distribute condoms, recruit for sodomy but outlaw prayer, the answer to popular parental protest is that they are religious right-wing fanatics. How long before free drugs and bordellos in all high schools? The progress from McGuffey to Dewey is already much greater than from Dewey to Brave New World. We're three-quarters of the way there. But if Percy said it that way, no one would review his books and no one would know anything about him. So he has to fool the critics with a cover, indirection, irony, humor, the prophet's cover in a world that is now a non-profit organization. <laughs> so he hides his bomb in the subtitle to Lost in the Cosmos, the last self-help book. That is, the self-help book to end all self-help books. The self-refuting, self-destroying self-help book. If self-help is futile, only God can save us. Percy does not preach the second point, but he shows the first. If modern man does not believe the first point, he will not be in the market for the second. Therefore, Percy does a tremendously important work, a more important work for the salvation of souls and society than the preachers do. He softens up the ground for their seed. C.S. Lewis makes the same point as Percy about modern psychology and its ugly little sister sociology, also by indirection in his fiction, most clearly through a minor character in that hideous strength, Hingist, a chemist, who is the only real scientist in the book. He had joined the demonic NICE because he thought it had something to do with science, but left because he found that it was instead all about applied psychology and sociology and ideology. His words come in response to something Mark Studdock says about sciences like psychology. He says, there are no sciences like, excuse me, sciences like sociology. He says, there are no sciences like sociology. You can't know people. You can only get to know them. There's the distinction. Kennan versus Wissen. Connaître versus savoir. Knowing people as you know statistical patterns of behavior or brain chemistry or genes or diets is impossible. You know them in a fundamentally different way than you know things because people have a fundamentally different kind of being than things. People are thous, not its. Subjects, not objects. You know them by Sophia, by wisdom, not by cogito, by cogitation. Ever since Descartes, we've idealized cogito, calculation, rationality, as the most perfect kind of knowledge. But all attempts to grasp ourselves by cogito have failed. And now we are the great unknown, we knowers of all things. We are lost in the cosmos. The reason we're lost in the cosmos is because we are not in the cosmos in the first place. That's Percy's amazing point. 
We subjects transcend the cosmos, which is the sum of all objects. Objectively and physically, the cosmos swallows us up like a flea, but as subjects, we spiritually contain the universe. Lewis puts the same startling point in chapter 3 of Miracles, that human consciousness is not part of the universe or part of nature. It is not one of the many objects that make up the universe. It is literally supernatural. For the knowledge of a thing is not one of that thing's parts. Therefore, the knowledge of nature, which we have, cannot be a part of nature. Percy also says this under a second spy cover, this cover of semiotic scientist in the central section of Lost in the Cosmos. The clearest behavioral difference between man and animals is language. Animals have only signals. Man has signs. The additional factor, the delta factor, as Percy calls it, is meaning or concept or the word. Logos means all three of these things in Greek. The objective meaning or essence, the concrete idea which understands it, and the word which expresses it. Without Logos, there is no humanity. In the beginning was the word for humanity, too. Helen Keller became functionally human the day she discovered, down by the well in that magical moment, that one thing means another, that words signify, that a word is not just a thing, but also a sign. Husserl called this phenomenon intentionality, that strange feature of ideas by which they point beyond themselves. Animals don't understand pointing or signs or significance. Point to a beautiful sunset and no animal will follow your finger. This is the very essence of language. And this is the very thing that our newest and most fashionable philosophy, deconstructionism, denies. That the words or the text mean anything at all beyond itself. Texts are only texts, things. There's no difference between text and world. There's no intelligible real world out there, just word games, a hall of mirrors. It's all text. I think this is an extremely accurate theory of knowledge for the damned souls in hell. I think that if Lewis had lived to see deconstructionism, he would have agreed with Percy in calling it utterly nihilistic and dehumanizing and probably even apocalyptic. For deconstructionism turns Helen Keller, the significance reading girl, back into Helen the animal, playing physical arbitrary games with meaningless signals. Helen, the discoverer of the world of spirit, is turned into Helen the material girl. Archibald MacLeish wrote in Ars Poetica that a poem must be palpable and mute, like globed fruit. A poem must not mean, but be. I'm not sure what he meant by that. He may have meant only that poetry shouldn't moralize, but it certainly sounds like deconstructionism. Words, that is meanings, are reduced to things. Reductionism versus transcendence. Reductionism is what Lewis warns against in The Abolition of Man. Lewis fights that battle mainly in the moral arena, Percy in the cognitive and linguistic arena. In The Abolition of Man, the reduction of the transcendent supernatural Tao or moral law to man-made conventions and the correlative reduction of our instrument for detecting this Tao, the chest or heart or moral sentiment or conscience, to mere instinct or social utility, this makes man into an unman, like Weston in Paralandra. To put it simply, it destroys your soul. 
Souls are not indestructible. They are only physically indestructible. They are morally and spiritually vulnerable and destructible. That is what hell is, according to a, a, a rather uh, important authority who said, Fear not him who is able only to destroy the body. I will tell you who to fear. Fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. The two things that distinguish man from the beast are logos and Tao, the word and the law, understanding and morality. Abolish both and you abolish man and you get instead trousered apes. You abolish Socrates and get Phil Donahue. <laughs> Is it possible for man to be abolished? Can evolution be reversed? Why not? There's more of a philosophical problem with evolution than with devolution. The philosophical problem with evolution is that it seems to violate the principle of causality, unless there is a God directing the process, for you can't get more out of less. Primordial slime by itself can't turn into chickens and cavemen and lawyers, well, maybe lawyers, but <laughs> it could easily work the other way. You could get less out of more. Why couldn't devolution happen? Why couldn't a few men start swinging through trees instead of walking on two feet and go naked and eat bananas and develop the habit and pass it on to their children and gradually devolve into apes? Better yet, forget the trees. Just feed your mind with newspapers and the boob tube. The ancients thought this could not happen. I hope they were right, but I'm not sure. St. Thomas Aquinas argued in the Summa Theologica that the natural law can never be abolished from the heart of man. Perhaps if St. Thomas had seen the Clarence Thomas confirmation hearings, he might have had second thoughts. The trousered apes produced by the abolition of the Tao may sound funny and even harmless when satirized, but the issue is more deadly serious than a nuclear holocaust. For bombs only destroy bodies. Philosophies can destroy souls. Here is the terrifying passage in Lost in the Cosmos that explains the connection between Taoelessness and violence. Percy writes, the self, since the time of Descartes, has been stranded, split off from everything else in the cosmos, a mind which professes to understand bodies and galaxies, but is by the very act of understanding marooned in the cosmos with which it has no connection. It therefore needs to exercise every option in order to reassure itself that it is not a ghost, but that it is a self among other selves. One such option is a sexual encounter. Another is war. The pleasure of a sexual encounter derives not only from physical gratification, but also from the demonstration to oneself that despite one's own ghostliness, one is, for the moment at least, a sexual being. Amazing. Indeed, the most amazing of all the creatures in the cosmos, a ghost with an erection. That's funny, but mention of war takes the fun out of the joke. Why do we connect sex with violence? Because both are often motivated by our need to prove that we are not ghosts. That is why we find the two ugliest things in the world so interesting and make them central themes of soap operas, gossip, and even high fiction. Rape and murder. We're addicted to them. This is no longer funny. Drunks are funny only from a distance, but certainly not in your family. All of Western civilization is one family, and it is full of drunks. They write most of our scripts. So what can we do? What shall I do to be saved? The only really serious question in the world. Lewis and Percy offer the same solution, for there is only one. When you make a mistake, there is no hope in progress, no hope in going on. There is hope only in regress, in repentance. 
you must go back to where you turned off the right road and somehow find your way back onto it. Only then can you progress. We must do what the very essence of modernism says cannot be done. We must turn back the clock. We must murder our new God, the idle progress. We must repent to be saved. This is not doom. Both authors are optimistic. It can be done. We are free to make this choice. Lewis ends the abolition of man on a note of hope, not doom. He says that even from science itself, the cure for scientism and reductionism could come through a new anti-reductionistic science. In other words, we can still make real progress from Skinner to Aristotle. Percy also sings a note of hope in Lost in the Cosmos, even in his most apocalyptic and scary scenario in the book. The last spaceship from Earth, carrying the last surviving members of the species whose inherent death wish and violence had destroyed the Earth, reaches Alpha Centauri and asks permission from the inhabitants of that planet to land there. The Alpha Centaurians reply that they must first judge the danger Earthmen may pose to their own planet. They must determine which category of intelligence Earthlings fit into. They have found that the cosmos contains three such species, which they call C1s, C2s, and C3s. Without using the direct theological words, Percy lets us discover that C1s are innocent, unfallen, and harmless. C2s are fallen, alienated from themselves, God, each other, and nature, and prone to selfishness, competition, and violence. And C3s are C2s who have known themselves, become aware of their predicament, and asked for help, that is, repented. The Alpha Centaurians determine, through a few significant probing questions, especially about sexual behavior, that Earthlings are not C1s. Then they ask, have you asked for help? The Earthlings have no idea what that could mean. Then the Alpha Centaurians realize that the Earthlings are C2s, not C3s. Permission to land is denied. The last humans die in orbit. Man is abolished. Why do I call this story optimistic? Because there is another possible ending. All that C2s have to do is to admit that they are C2s and they become C3s. But to do that, to repent, they must believe in a real moral law at the very least, if not a God, to repent to. That is why denying the natural law is such a radical step. Such a denial inevitably will lead, either spiritually or physically, to the abolition of man. The obstacle to salvation is not sin. It is impenitence. The road to hell is not paved with good intentions, what a stupid saying, or even with evil intentions, but with impenitence, with shamelessness, with pop psychology, with self-help. The only people the Savior didn't come to save are those people who think they aren't lost. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus came not for C1s or for C2s who think they're C1s, but for C3s, like Dr. Tom Moore. What Christian spy Percy smuggles in to the fortress of the secular modern mentality under cover of fiction and satire is the one thing modernity most vehemently hates and fears, the notion of sin. For the modern mind, the only sin is to believe in sin. The English word sin is akin to the German word sünde, which means separation or alienation or lostness. So lost in the cosmos is really about sin. 
The road from being lost in the cosmos to being abolished is not an inevitable slide. We are on that road now, but we can turn back. Lewis and Percy say the same thing all the prophets say. But in order to turn back, we must admit that we are headed in the wrong direction. Percy says there are only two kinds of people in the world, saints who know that they are sinners and sinners who think that they are saints. In other words, C2s and, three, and C3s. There are no more C1s after Eden. Percy's and Lewis's message in the bottle is the first half of the gospel, repent and believe. Percy wrote not just to elicit laughs, 